The art and craft of movie making, the stories that define it. Welcome to Cinematic Immunity. I'm your host, and with me as always is podcast producer and co-host, Brian Hart. Hello, everybody. This week is a shift away from our usual podcast tone. This is the story of the producers of the Greg Allman biopic, Midnight Rider and Sarah Jones. We put on a special panel of guests tonight. This panel has a range of guests that specialize in different trade facets within the entertainment industry. They will have their own take on what has happened and what they think about the future. I would like to take a moment to introduce our first guest. She is recognized by the International Cinematographers Guild, IATSE Local 600, as an emerging cinematographer. We actually met when we were both working as steadfast camera assistants on a movie being produced called Rainbow Tribe. I'd like to welcome Vanessa Menlunas here. Hi, everybody. I'd also like to add that I am a second AC for the union, as I think I might have some opinions of being a second that might be relevant to this podcast. Well, thank you for joining us. We actually met on a film that was production managed by our second guest, Danelle Hand, who has been navigating the world of producing and production management for the last 20 years. Welcome, Danelle. Hello there. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming out. You're welcome. Our last guest is Ted Hayesh, a cinematographer whose latest feature, Decoding Annie Parker, is being released in theaters this week. We will be having him on a later podcast to talk about his experiences, but for now, we are happy to have him here as a guest. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Brian. Hello, fellow guests. So Brian has sifted through many of the articles out there on this tragedy and has boiled down these reports into a direct summary from beginning to current of what has happened. In my reaching out to friends and colleagues to do this podcast, I discovered that some of them had worked with Sarah and turned down the podcast on account of it being a little too close to home. That being said, we want to forewarn you that we will be discussing briefly in this report these events in their stark reality as they have been reported. If you may feel that the next four minutes might be a little too much to handle, we request that you skip ahead four minutes in this podcast. With respect to the families and loved ones of Miss Jones, we thank you for listening to this podcast. Up front, I should say that what you're about to hear is a collection of articles presented as fact by different media outlets. Listener discretion is advised. This is not meant to be sensational, but is meant to accurately help the audience understand the truth. It takes many hours to sort out the information and get the details boiled down to a concise, direct detail, and I hope that you understand that this is an attempt to present perspective. Brian, myself, and our guests may not agree on everything, but we are all agreed that using this platform for discussion helps generate conversation, which is the most important thing for us to do, generate a conversation so that we can take care of each other. Brian, would you start us off? In an attempt to get everyone up to speed with the facts of the story thus far, we're going to share some of the reports that have emerged in the last two months regarding this complex tragedy. Variety would tell us that on February 20th in Wayne County, Georgia, while filming Midnight Rider, the Greg Allman biopic, a second AC named Sarah Jones, age 27, was killed during filming. Seven others were injured. The crew was warned by First Assistant Director Hilary Schwartz that a train might arrive during shooting, and if so, they would have a minute to clear the tracks and get off the bridge once they heard a whistle. Hollywood Reporter would tell us about Joyce Gilliard, a 42-year-old hairstylist working on Midnight Rider. The crew was filming a dream sequence, and they had placed a twin-sized metal frame bed and mattress in the middle of the tracks. Then, Gilliard looked up and saw a light in the distance, followed by an immense howl of a locomotive. Miller yelled at everyone to run. Jones, several bags slung over his shoulder, shouted something about what to do with the camera equipment. Drop it, everyone yelled. The only viable escape route to the closest shore lay in running towards the approaching train, now traveling by one estimate at almost 60 miles per hour. Miller and another crew member began tugging at the bed, trying to remove it from the train's path, fearing it might cause a derailment. But as the train approached, they abandoned their efforts. 
Before Gilliard knew it, the train was upon her. She found herself clinging to one of the girders, but the blast of pressure and wind from the train's passing ripped Gilliard's left arm away from her body and straight into the train. It snapped like a stick. With one hand still on the girder, Gilliard looked down and saw some of the bones sticking out of her sweater. Quote, I was sure I was going to die, end quote. One of the first things she did see when she opened her eyes was a lifeless Jones. Like Gilliard, she tried to find shelter on the gangplank, but when the train hit the bed and mattress, it sent debris flying. In the melee, Miller also fell on the tracks. A still photographer nearby managed to pull him away just in time. He was sobbing, Gilliard says, trying to cope with the disaster. The multiple investigations since have widened to include the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Georgia law enforcement authorities are treating the investigation into Jones' death as a negligent homicide, setting the stage for the biggest safety-related scandal to rock Hollywood in at least a decade. It would be confirmed that no railway safety personnel were monitoring the set, and that cast and crew had not been provided call sheets with detailed notes on safety. Gilliard claims that no such call sheets were provided, and no evidence that they existed has emerged. Ordinarily, producers say a location shoot like this would also have included an on-site medic. In fact, she says, there was not one safety meeting for the shoot on the tracks that day. Two trains had rumbled past without incident, but when she and others asked if any more trains were expected, the answer had come back a definitive no. Deadline would tell us that Charlie Baxter, the locations manager, informed the producers that CSX permission was denied. Allegedly, after that meeting and Charlie was gone, some of those higher-ups called him a, quote, old woman, end quote. The production company did have permission to be on the Rainier Paper Company property that the tracks run through. For whatever reason, Charlie did not report for work on the day of the accident. The crew were told that there would be two trains. They were also told that this was not a shooting day, but a camera test day. They were out in the middle of nowhere with no medic, and no PAs had been sent along the tracks. Jay Sedrich, the UPM on midnight, has suggested to the lead investigator, Joe Gardner, that they weren't really filming the day that Sarah was killed. But allegedly there is footage of Sarah slating the camera, and apparently you can see the train coming in the background. That footage has been subpoenaed along with the sound files, it is assumed. Entertainment Weekly would tell us that at this time, director Randall Miller and others at Unclaimed Freight are still under investigation for negligent homicide by the Wayne County, Georgia Sheriff's Office. IATSE confirms that Miller did not take proper precautions for a potentially dangerous shoot. Executives at CSX, the company responsible for the railroad, claim that they were denied permission to shoot the scene on the trestle. WSAV out of Savannah tells us that when executive producer Jay Sedrich was asked if he had permission to be on the trestle or to be on the train tracks, Mr. Sedrich replied, quote, that's complicated, end quote. The report goes on to say that according to a CSX employee, the production company had previously been denied permission to film on the trestle and that there was an email to verify that fact. The email was between Charlie Baxter, the location manager, and a CSX employee named Carla Grulau. Finally, the report says while speaking to the director, Randall Miller, that he was asked who owned the production company or who would be in charge, and the report says Miller said, quote, he guessed that would be he and his wife, end quote. Billboard would tell us that published just three days before the tragedy, an article includes a lie by Unclaimed Freight that filming would begin on February 24th. From documents released, we now know that after being turned down by CXX Railroad to shoot, to shoot on the very busy high-speed rail line, that they planned to use the cover of a camera test on February 20th to shoot a shot that they could not get approved legally. Instead, they decided to lie and risk the lives of their crew to get the shot they wanted. Savannah, Georgia's WTOC would tell us 
that Randall and producer slash wife Jody Savin's behind-the-scenes DVD documentary for their previous film, CBGB, uh, included jokes about a scene where they drop a piano down a set of stairs without the knowledge of the location's homeowner, and another where they have a toddler run through a field of cows. Says Randall, quote, I mean, I don't think it's too dangerous at all to have a little kid run through cows, do you think? End quote. LAS.com would report that the Academy Awards honored Sarah Jones after the always controversial In Memoriam segment. The petition to honor Jones at the Oscars drew nearly 62,000 signatures. Executive producer for the project, Nick Gant, reportedly made some callous remarks about Jones' death on Facebook, saying that, quote, young women die of all sorts of things like bikini waxes, unquote. He had that quickly deleted, according to the Daily News. Deadline would tell us that the weekend before the February 20th train accident, Midnight Rider producer Jody Savin made controversial public comments at a meeting of local production crew in which she touted her company's methods and complained about the Savannah Film Commission for keeping a close watch on her previous film, CBGB. Savin, quote, went on to talk about CBGB and was bitching about how our former commissioner, Jay Self, kept showing up to set, telling her she couldn't do this, she couldn't do that, and she was so glad he was no longer film commissioner. Savin said, quote, we make movies by our own rules, end quote. Entertainment Weekly would tell us that the production company, Unclaimed Freight, recently informed AATSI that it planned to resume production on Midnight Rider in Los Angeles this June, but that's now in serious doubt. The film can't move forward without crew to work on it. The Facebook page, I Refuse to Work on Midnight Rider, now has over 11,000 readers. Greg Allman, Open Road Films, and Unclaimed Freight have been flooded with messages demanding that they not continue to work on the film, posting photos of Sarah, while some of the posts have taken a far darker nature filled with threats. Variety would tell us that William Hurt is pulled out of his starring role on Midnight Rider. And finally, The Hollywood Reporter would tell us that Midnight Rider subject Greg Allman is urging director Randall Miller not to proceed with the production of the controversial biopic. Mr. Allman wrote, Your desires as a filmmaker should not outweigh your obligations as a human being. I am asking you to do the right thing and set aside your attempts to resume the production out of respect for Sarah, her family, and the loss that all of us feel so deeply, end quote. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again. I just kind of maybe want to start this topic out with um, responsibility for safety in general, not necessarily in this specific situation, but in your opinions, who's responsible for set safety? Maybe we'll start with you, Danelle. Okay, well, legally, your first AD is the main person who is responsible for it. If there happens to be a stunt coordinator on it, they are also responsible for it if they are are there. Um, It does not matter whether the accident happens on an actual stunt or not, but if there is anything that is thought to be hazardous, whether it's, you know, the way that uh, a truck is moving or anything, they are the main ones that are there on set. Director will be held accountable but it is mainly the first AD who is schooled in it. They, are, they have to hold a safety meeting the day of. Usually they will also hold one the night prior to a stunt to make, or you know anything to make sure that all the equipment and everything that they will need is there. Whenever anything hazardous is going on, then the UPM usually has to make sure that a medic is available if you know you need to have anybody medevaced out also and if there uh you will also let you know local police departments know 
et cetera, et cetera, depending upon what is, is happening at that moment. The UPM, of course, will know. In this particular instance, you can also have the locations manager be responsible. Um, and then you, uh, but those are the main ones in terms of safety. Who else might be involved in uh, these decisions that are outside of the production company, um, like, uh, say, CSX in this case, uh, uh, the railway station, the railway company who owned the tracks, or um, the film commission might be someone that might be involved in these types of, uh, of, of stunts and activities? Absolutely, because one, you, whenever you're going to film someplace, um, you, you need to notify you know, uh, the owner of where it is, you will be notifying the insurance company. You will be notifying any of your security personnel. You know, your ADs are there, you know, first up. Again, if there is any foreseeable problem, it's supposed to go through the the food chain, if you will. Um, In terms of a permit, yes, they will know, but only if you notify them. And there isn't somebody that tends to go out and and look at uh, the location unless there's a child, nudity, you know, any of those things, things that actually cross, uh, you know, uh, state law. Um, but in terms of the railroad itself, if they didn't know that you were filming, they would not, they really don't have, in my opinion, legal liability because they had no knowledge and they had not given permission. So, you know, you'd have to ask an attorney, you know, specifically what theirs would be, but I would not, you know, uh, lay it at their feet. And I'd add to that that the, as a natural checklist, the call sheet typically has the nearest hospital. So it's it's a part of that process. The old axiom that the first runs a set and the second runs the location is from... Uh, you know, everything boils down to the call sheet, and it's it becomes a checklist for the entire day. I know a lot of people think that it's just, you know, when we're going to serve lunch, but it's got 400 other things, you know, um, that especially the AD team are looking at. Right. Weather, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing is, you know, you would, if they had gotten permits and had gotten the permission of the railroad company to be there, you would also have one of their representatives there on the set. And they would be in constant connection uh, to know, you know, would there be any additional trains coming through, the approximate time of arrival, because all those things are monitored by computer, you know, as they pass certain areas on the, the tracks themselves. And this isn't the first time we've, you know, we've ever seen, you know, someone shoot on railway tracks. What we're talking about here is standard protocol for how to prevent accidents so that we, we can ensure that as uh, 100 people roll into a location that 100 people will come out of it the same way that they went into it. Absolutely. And, and, and especially whenever it's something unusual, then there should be more precaution taken. Uh, we, on a union shoot, you definitely will have a lot of rehearsals, you know, that happen. Um, one of the problems with when something is low budget, not really whether it's union or not, because you can still be low budget and be union, is that people will tend to do more rehearsals. They'll walk through it. And that's one of the problems uh, that arises when you don't rehearse with everything in place 
the actual camera there, the actual extras there, and, you know, timing it out, et cetera. You get into a lot of problems that way. Um, and the other name that I would add uh, to you earlier, I mean, obviously the first AD is the correct answer to who's, you know, the, the primary safety officer on set. Um, but the key grip is, is also typically one of your more seasoned people, one of your more veterans on any film crew, uh, and they are also typically have an eye on safety. Um, but, the, I mean, the correct answer is that everyone should always have their eyes open for any kind of safety problem. I mean, I was, I, was, I was taught, I assume everybody was, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And if one of the questions is, is my God, should we be doing this? This doesn't seem safe. That's, you know, the most important question that can be asked. No, absolutely. Because if you are recognizing that there could be an issue simply because of your POV, um, then you, it's up to you to bring it to the fore of somebody. But there does tend to be uh, a chain of command. And so most people will bring it to the AD who tends to be sort of the center of communications on set. The second is, is, is usually down, um, you know, at home base. So it, you know, base camp. So it, it's different that way. However, there might not be, it might not be conducive for communication on that particular set. And depending upon who the director is, they might not be open to any suggestions. Um, and then, you know, information can always be incorrect is the other thing. So you can't take what is, you know, stated as being gospel. The fact that it was one minute does not mean that it's going to precisely be one minute. And especially when people are scared or um, and trying to, to think about something, multiple things at, at, at the same time, they tend to make mistakes. But in this particular incident... There were many ways that they could have, um, you know, prevented it or at least lessened the tragedy. Well, I mean, as everybody knows, there's specific industry guidelines for anything that that goes on on the set, whether you're bringing animals, whether you're working with cars, stunts, uh, firework, weapons, weapons, anything, including trains and those from what i've read those guidelines were not followed this is very plain and simple from what i can see however the reasons behind that why who knows that would all come out in the next hopefully few months but if you if i had been a member of this crew and i had been there that day and someone in authority had told me well there were supposed to be two trains today and we're not going to see any more and i believe that person that takes away some of the, you know, the nervousness about that site. If the producer, we don't know, we have no idea what the, what the sequence of events was, but if a producer said that to the AD or a producer said that, somebody in authority said it to somebody else and then it was disseminated from there, oh, well, somebody in authority obviously knew that there was going to be two trains and that's the end of it. Um, I think they, that would have relaxed people, which is what the woman in the article was talking about, that that somewhat relaxed them, but there was, you know, there was also somewhat a, geez, we're shooting on this trestle and, Where's the CSX guy kind of feel from some of the veterans, I would assume? All, yes. And also because some of the other locations had been permitted, they did have their, you know, locations manager handling everything, et cetera, that people would have thought that the same type of background checks and, and everything would have been done on everything. And that communications would have been open between the, the railroad company and production. 
And until we find out exactly who was there that day, because it was a pre-day, it was a day without a number, as, as an AD would say. This, this did not, you know, this was not shooting day one. This was negative one or something. We have no idea who was on set. We don't know if there was a gaffer. We don't know if there was a key grip. We, you know, we assume that there was a camera crew because at least the operator and second were there. Um, unfortunately, that information isn't going to come out for a long time, I'm sure, until they're done with their, their legal proceedings. But we can imagine all of the holes that were not filled that day. Apparently, the, the locations manager was definitely not there. And, and also the Which fact, raises a flag. Yes. And well, especially because, again, you are on a locations and usually they will be there because they're your go between. Yeah. Um, and they also handle a lot of the paperwork of wherever you happen to be. But again, because they were at you know more of a distant location out in the middle of nowhere, not only do you not know the crew that's specifically there because they could be toting in equipment, they could be back wherever the, the you know the trucks end up having to be. Um, and the fact that when they started to film, that, again, they didn't have a medic there. They didn't have any kind of safety procedure already in line. One of the things that concerned me was that not only are they, um, you know, filming this particular scene, knowing that they are uh, just trying to steal the shot, but one, it is a dream sequence. So it, it it's really not related to anything that is in... Uh, the actual plot line. So a dream sequence can be shot any way or anyhow. It doesn't have to be based in reality. The other thing is that they, from what I've read, seem to be in a very limited space where if there is something as dangerous as a train coming at you, you should be able to drop where you are and move in any direction at all to be able to get out of the area. And they instead show... um, chose an area where they were blocked in, where there was really only one escape route, which was at the train itself. And they had to go single file from what I've, you know, um, read, which means that if a person stumbles in front of you, if there's something, because again, people, people panic, you do not have clear access to exit. And those are things that, even if they're going to steal a shot, could have, you know, kept this from being such a, a horrible disaster. It's been said before by a representative out there in Atlanta who I spoke with earlier this week um, that it can be very difficult to track down individual uh, groups or one one consistent lawbreaker, uh, one person who consistently breaks the rules. Uh, the idea being when you're managing uh, labor on a much larger scale, you can set rules that hopefully uh, your crew, will, uh, your your employees, your union members will get behind, um, and your crew will get behind. But it can be very difficult to track down one offender. What are your What's your take on on that? Um, it, that's true, actually, because usually what ends up happening when there's a, 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 a disaster or an accident is that several people end up making a mistake or they end up sliding a bit as to protocol. If you're on a union shoot, it tends to be because, you know, they're they have a lot of experience in it. They don't think something's going to happen. And therefore, they think that you are, you know, just being incredibly anal retentive. Um, if you are on uh, a, a low budget, they don't have the money for the rehearsals. They tend to not have the experience. And so they'll kind of, you know, follow whoever is in charge. But 
if you just make it mandatory for the first AD to follow uh, procedures to the letter, everybody just will fall in line. They will know that they need to do it from the get-go, and, and, and they will. But it's amazing how many people need to be um, reminded of the procedures because, again, you have several departments here that fell through. It wasn't just one area. It's the fact that certain things weren't written on the, the call sheets. That's the second AD. That the safety meeting wasn't done. That's the first AD that the director wanted to get the shot and stay there to the very last second. So, you know, that the locations person chose not to be there that day. And the fact that he knew and thought that there was a problem, but then did not notify anybody else. If, if I could, I want to go back to where you, you asked in the beginning, you said, well, who's responsible? And I have to say that whether we like it or not, the... I've found that sets, at least the ones I've been working on here in Los Angeles, and a lot of them are studio productions, a lot of them are union productions, and they are much safer than any other sets I've worked on from at the beginning of my career. And, and one of those reasons is because the studios take the safety program, the idea that every company, whether it's Warner Brothers, whether it's McDonald's, whether it's... Um, XYZ recording studio has to have a safety program in place. They have to be able to tell the employees, okay, here are the fire exits. Here's where we go. Here's what you do if this happens. Here's, wh here's where you put the hazardous chemicals. Here's where this goes. And so they've taken that really seriously. And that's why, for instance, the, the local 728 lighting technicians have to take something in the order of you know, 11, 12, 13 safety passport classes in order to work. If you don't take those classes, you can't work on the set. And so they take this in, this is the, the employer, the studio. And to bring that back to, to what we've been talking about, this is a company that I don't know if it had a safety program. I don't know how seriously it was taken. And it was, a, and it seems to have been an independent production, where you have one or two people who own the company and who are who are ultimately the ones responsible. Vision for the they're responsible for raising the money, they're responsible for making the best product they can, but they're also responsible for keeping the people that work with them safe, as any employer should. Well, one of the things about uh, that is California and New York have incredibly strong laws in terms of any kind of uh, employee safety. And then also because these are the two states that have handled the film industry for so long, we not only uh, are more aware as to what to look for, but we also have more personnel at each of the union offices, et cetera, um, who can go out and visit a set. Which are a five-minute uh, you know, drive away, which are a quick phone call away in New York or L.A., but not the woods in Georgia. And the other thing is, remember, our employees, the crew members that are here, we have no qualms about calling a union. 
or calling, you know, the film commission or whatever else and complaining or asking that they, they pop by on set or have a friend, you know, from one of them, you know, pop by on set. While when you're in one of these other states that perhaps doesn't have as much of a history with filming as, as California and New York, they don't, they're leaving it to the crew members to know what's what is appropriate and what is not they also really want that work to come into their state desperately and that is one of the problems also with the unions is that many times the unions even though they know that there's an issue they don't want to step in and stop filming or whatever else because they don't want that work to go away for their um, their members And um, in terms of what you had said a little while ago about this particular company seemed to have had a history with it, and it was noted by the Georgia Film Commission, and to the point that uh, one of the producers had actually um, said that they were, you know, a pain, Um, that is a big red flag. The fact that they had had a history that the film commission didn't know about it and yet did not put anybody on set nor flag the company. And, um, and they can, you know, depending upon um, what is going on there. And also, I don't and For know, all we know, the Savannah Film Commission is one or two people. It's not, it's not going to be, you know, a thousand person institution. Right. And the other thing is, you know, like I said, there's a possibility of some changes that could happen within the unions and the film commissions that if, uh, you know, for the future, that for example, if a company is doing questionable practices, that, that the crew list, that everybody is notified, at least so that they have a heads up on it. And, um, and then you might be able to bring in some other private sources, et cetera, the same way that we do when we, you know, have like Animal Humane or, or whoever it is, you know, out there. Well, going back to what, what Ted was saying, the one part that you did not mention, the big word that was not used there is the reason why there is so much safety activity is that Warner and Paramount and all the big houses have massive insurance policies. Okay. And that is a huge gun to the back of the head of, of those companies. They, they have to do what they have to do because there are millions upon millions of dollars on the line. An independent film might just have liability and might just have Marine for you know, the one vehicle that they got kind of a thing. It's, it's a much smaller you know, presence, and as a result, there isn't an oomph uh, you know, to follow the, the rules. Very, very true. And actually, the main thing with a larger production is not the insurance, but the bond. They will have a bond, and a bond has the legal right to pull the picture, to hold the picture, and just kind of take it hostage until things are met. And they do not care as much about whether somebody is a star or a bigwig director or whatever else. They have no problem at all doing that. Insurance companies, they vary. Uh, depending upon what is at stake, etc. Same thing with unions. Uh, but the bond company, uh, is something that many small productions do not bond their films, so it's not an issue there. And I would doubt very much if this company had that. Back to your insurance, um, the fact that they that this particular company was at a location illegally probably will nullify their insurance. Um, just a quick thing that I wanted to touch on that we had uh, just touched on earlier was um, 
now that we have a whole bunch more uh, work in the state of Georgia, something that the state of Georgia and the Georgia Film Commission can do is to increase uh, the funding to bring in outside management so they can have proper staffing for the influx of films that are being funded in Georgia. Um, that being said, um, it might be it might be a safe observation that um, some of the unions and the union representation can also increase their presence in Georgia to make sure that their members are informed and unified enough to properly assess risk and ask questions when they're unsure. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can, um, it, that might be one perspective of how to address this in a professional manner, manner from a guild, union, and uh, state level. Um, one thing I'd like to ask, if that's all right, one thing I'd like to ask, uh, Vanessa, what are some of your experiences in dealing with this on a whole different level? Because you do walk the line between union and non-union with, your, uh, with the different crafts that you pull out. Yeah, definitely. Um, sitting here and listening to you guys, I live a whole different world. And starting off, uh, when I met you, Lewis, we were doing independent films after independent films after independent films before the strikes happened. Um, but there's, there's something to be said about California having such a press about safety and union rules and protecting the union members, but when you're on an independent film that has no money, that's when they're held with no accountability, like no one is holding them accountable for anything. It's like they're under the blanket or they're under the radar of any kind of safety. And they push you so hard, and whether it's from the directors, from the producers, from the AD, sometimes as a crew member, you don't feel safe. Even though we're all supposed to be held accountable for our own safety, you're made to feel like you can't say anything. Like if you're, the, for me, a couple of instances, I was a second AC. I was on a set with this crew that had been working for a long, long time together. I was the newcomer. We were put in a situation that was really, really it's tricky. And it's, I didn't feel safe. We were pushing long hours. We were like in the middle of the woods. It was taxing everything. And at one point, the producer asked us, and the AD, they got together and they asked us if we were okay to go more than 17 hours. And <laughs> Which is not atypical uh, with what we do. Yeah, uh, which we understand because they want to make, they wanna make the, the day because they don't want to push another day and all that stuff. But 17 hours in the woods is a lot to ask. And then to push more to get the shot and then to have the time to wrap and then go to sleep and then come back. So we were put in a position to where this DP was his first time shooting for a bigger director. So he didn't want to, he was stuck in the, in the position where he has all his crew and his friends on set and he's asking them to do this thing that is very, um, very dangerous. And you, you know it is, but then he's getting all this pressure from the higher ups and they're holding it over his head like, you have to make this happen. So all of his, all of his friends totally understood and they decided to go ahead and push forth. And, you know, I wasn't okay with it, but I didn't feel safe to be the one that singled out and say, Hey, I don't want to do this. Cause then, then you'd feel like, you know, the a-hole <laughs> for holding up a production, for holding up the day, for holding up the shoot, for holding up the movie, for making the director mad or making the producer mad. And, you know, at the same time, I'm just trying to make a living and like start up, you know, a career as a second AC, so it's really it's really difficult. And so when I think of independent movies that have such a low budget, it reminds me of shooting in another state. Absolutely, it's it's the same. So it's very unfortunate. I, I'm I'm curious as to 
what sort of danger you felt you were put in? Was it the long hours? Not only the long hours, but we had to walk all the gear everywhere. Like we get going deeper and deeper in the forest. You know, they didn't plan on shooting 17 hours, so we didn't have second meal. So everyone's super tired or like out of energy. We don't have anything to like supply us with so more. So general working conditions is really general work. I mean, they well, it sounds like there was no uh, there was no lighting to provide them a safe exit to get their gear out. Um, yeah, I mean, like and that. on that particular show, that was just the theme of it. It was like you'd come to work every day and be like, "What's next? You know, what are we gonna? What kind of what kind of trenches are we walking in today? Like, what studio are we shooting? Are they gonna have walls that's not richety? Like, you know, or like it, it's just." It's a a difficult thing handling the independent film low budget market, but it's unfortunately the way that you're one of the ways that you're introduced into this industry and make your way up. So, and I didn't know back then. I was meant uh, made to learn. Uh, I was made to think that calling the union was actually a bad thing, which is really unfortunate because now I know way better. Like if there's something, I could call them anonymously, anonymously and then. They'd show up if they need if they need to, you know. You definitely hit on two points that I think are very relative. No one wants to be, and I'm using air quotes here, that guy. Okay. Um, also, it's it can be very tricky once you get into that situation, you know, on how you how to work your way out of it and not be not be in that position. Well, I do both union and non-union shoots, and again, part of it has to do with who is your UPM. And what is, because the, the, the smaller the budget, actually the more prep you have to put in for you to have, you know, fewer problems in production and in post. But in terms of the detail work, um, again, that is how you keep, you know, your, your crew safe. You keep them feeling that all their needs are taken care of and that you are being list that they are being listened to and again that pretty much will be your upm and your producer that will establish that um you know that feeling um on the set ted if i can ask you what are some of the demands that have been placed on you or requested of you by so you've before you were officially a cinematographer uh, making your money as that on a regular basis. You were you've done uh, an ex- you've had an extremely healthy career as a gaffer, um, and working your way up through the set lighting department. What type what type of pressures have been placed on you by director of photography or production staffers um, that uh, you've had to maybe stand ground? It could be um, anything from overweighted condors to long hours. Uh, what type of pressures um, might you find yourself having to deal with? That's an interesting question because when you start your career, there's a lot of things you don't know. So there are, there is a certain level of naivete when you go into the into this business, and and of course there's also a lot of things that we did over the years that we no longer do. There were there it, for years it was common practice to put two 18ks and a, an operator into a, an 80-foot condor and send it all the way up, and that was what we did. That puts the, uh, the condor lift the, uh, overweight between the cable, the two lights, the cable, and the operator. We're talking easily 500 pounds, and at best, that condor's rated for 500 pounds. But we did that for years and years and years before finally... 
the between the uh, contract services safety program, the the studios, the safety program with the union, they got together with the manufacturers of the lifts and said, "Here are the limits. Here's don't go over them," and then taught us what those limits were and said, "Okay, so that gave me the ammunition and let me then say to a UPM, I need two condors, or I need different lights, or I need." More remote control lights, so I don't have to put an operator in the in the lift and keep the. And I distinctly remember the first few times I said that the the question was why we've never done it like that before. Well, this is the safety program; it's not safe to do that anymore. How do you think we can draw some of those same mentalities and rules into a world non-union where they don't necessarily have to follow those rules? Um, other than putting your feet down, is there a way that you can maybe successfully navigate that discussion so that you can uh, get them to understand what it is you need effectively? Or does it determine on who the UPM is that sometimes they just won't listen? Well, I, th- I think that the department heads and certainly anyone who's working as a, as a technician, because it's a technical medium, it's, it's, uh, we're working with mechanical objects all the time even actors it's a, they have to know okay we're going to get from point A to point B is the path on the floor clear and the I think that it's important for people to inform themselves of okay what are we doing and and just to take a step back to realize that I not only want to work in this business today but I want to work in it tomorrow and 10 years from now and just to think okay is this safe? Is what I'm being asked to do safe? And realize that if if you do it, something happens, and there is no tomorrow, then of course it wasn't worth it. And a, a lot of people say, okay, well, I'd like to, you know, oh, everyone, all of us, I'm sure, have a story of what we got away with. And years later, you think back and you think, I shouldn't have done. 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 Again, we've had Danelle Hand, Ted Hayash, and Vanessa Manlunas here with us um, for tonight's panel discussion on Sarah Jones and that complex tragedy. This is part one of a two-part show. Uh, The next episode will post next Tuesday, May 16th. If you want to know more about us, go to www.cinematicimmunitycast.com. Look up our Facebook page, and if you like it, it'll help us grow, and we'd appreciate it. For all of you listening in at home, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, folks. Show some love. Thank you so much, guys.